Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Today is Thursday, March 1st, 2018. I'm your host, Andrew Vestusha, sitting in for Scott Bland, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. This week, Hope Hicks, Donald Trump's fifth communications director and trusted ally, has resigned. Son-in-law and advisor Jared Kushner's interim security clearance has been downgraded. And former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort's trial date has been set for September 17th. We'll discuss what happened, why it matters, and what's to come. Before we get started, a reminder. If you like the show and want to support the Nerdcast, subscribe, rate us, and write a review. And we want your feedback and questions. Email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Now let's welcome White House reporter Nancy Cook. Thanks for having me. And news editor Emily Stevenson. Hi. Uh, Our first data point is five. Since December 2016, President Trump has gone through five communications directors. Hope Hicks is the latest one to exit 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Nancy, what's going on over there? Oh, so much. So much. (laughs) It's been a crazy week. Hope Hicks announced uh, that she was resigning on Tuesday or yesterday, Wednesday. Wednesday. (laughs) And uh, that really sent a huge shockwave through Washington. She is the president's sort of closest aide at this point. She's with him all the time. She's able to kind of translate what he wants to the broader communications team, but also just to everyone in the White House. And so uh, she's leaving in March or April. We're not sure of the exact time frame. Uh, You know, people said it didn't have anything to do with the Russia investigation. Um, That's what we've been told. Uh, that she was just exhausted. There was like no perfect time to go. You know, there's been chaos for the past two months. Any time she would have announced it would have been seen as, oh, as a reaction to this. But she has really been under a lot of scrutiny lately uh, with the Russia stuff and also uh, with the dismissal or resignation of Rob Porter, who was the staff secretary and Hope's boyfriend. And her boyfriend, yeah. And her boyfriend. It's like a soap opera. It is like a soap opera. Uh, and her boyfriend, who left the White House uh, amid allegations that he physically and emotionally abused two ex-wives. And so she's just been really under a ton of scrutiny lately. Paparazzi hangs out in front of her apartment building in Washington, D.C. She's told friends she doesn't like Washington. She's sick of being in the bubble. And she didn't kind of want to be the story herself. And so it, I just think it's a surprise. It's not a surprise that she would leave under that pressure. But it's a surprise because I feel like people thought that given her close relationship with the president, she would be someone who would outlast everyone else. Somebody told y'all for your story last night that this was more like Trump losing a limb than a mm-hmm. communications <laughs> director, which really stuck with me. And I've, I've said before that Hope seems more like a member of the Trump family than some actual members of the Trump family. Definitely. And, you know, the president called her Hopey and she steamed his pants while he was wearing them. I mean, they had a really unusual relationship for a president and communications director. And she was one of the first people who joined his campaign. They were very close. And even yesterday, I mean, you saw people tweeting like, why why is the press spending so much time writing about this 29-year-old communications director? But really, she was more than a communications director, right? I mean, that was her sort of title. But she did everything. And she was in the room with the president. You could literally, you would call her on the phone and she'd be able to just 
ask the president, you know, whether whether something was true or not, or like to give his version of the events. Um, and you just don't see that from the rest of the press staff in in the White House. I mean, even Sarah Sanders like doesn't enjoy that level of access and that kind of relationship with the president. I also think Hope was someone who in the White House uh, was able to sort of be very calm and professional, regardless of the roller coaster of what was going on. And I feel like a lot of people in the White House get swept up into these various factions and infighting and sort of knifing each other. And I feel like Hope always uh, seemed to try to rise above that. And really, it was just like her relationship with the president and protecting the president. And that's what she was mostly focused on. And for the most part, she didn't get sucked into a lot of these sort of petty, dramatic, factionalized fights. And it was really only once she started getting sucked into these sort of um, fights that have so for so long characterized the White House that she seemed to be interested in leaving, right? I mean, she had successfully for, for almost a year, say that, of the, and now she has paparazzi chasing her. She's Her personal life is, is on the cable networks. I think what'll be interesting is whether or not, and this is just a broader question about people, uh, you know, in the Trump orbit, you know, whether or not she actually fully leaves. Like, mm-hmm. I've been told she's going to go back to Connecticut, spend time with her family, look for a job, most likely in New York, because that's where she came from. But there's also been some suggestion that she's leaving, but maybe she could play a role in the 2020 reelect. Um, you know, will she keep talking to Trump? Will she keep talking to the children? My guess is probably. And there's a huge swath of people who have exited the Trump orbit, uh, some under kind of negative circumstances like Corey Lewandowski. He was in the Oval Office recently. Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony Scaramucci. 11-day Anthony. He's talking to the president again regularly. Yeah, people don't leave. And so I had one White House advisor uh, or one White House official tell me yesterday, you know, it's people don't leave um, and people – you know, it's not the people because I was saying, well, is this people resurfacing? And this person said, no, it's not people resurfacing. It's just that they don't ever leave. You, like They might go underground a bit, but then they come up. And so I, I think that this just, uh, you know, I'll be curious to see how much hope actually leaves. Um, and then also just who's going to fill that vacuum for right. the president. And I think part of it is the president is always second guessing his current staff, right? So it's always sort of the grass is greener type situation. He's like, oh, well, but I remember, you know, Sean used to do it this way or Anthony used to do it X, Y, Z way. And that I think keeps them, that, that gives them power, right? Because he goes to them and refers to them constantly in the White House. I mean, even Reince Priebus, who was widely seen as like a nice guy, but totally terrible chief of staff, bad at managing the White House, bad at keeping Trump in line. You know, he's he talks to Trump now. Right. He's on the phone with him. He's on the phone with him. He was at the White House recently. You know, he was having dinner the other day with the Commerce Secretary. I read somewhere in Playbook. You know, he's had dinner with Gary Cohn, Chris Christie. It's like this whole crew, you know, they're still tied in. And actually, sometimes I think you can have a lot more power on the outside because you don't have to take all the incoming fire every single day. You can just talk to the president sort of on his terms when he wants to reach out to you and you can give advice. And and I feel like some people outside of the White House have a better view of what's actually going on inside or at least what the president thinks than top staffers in the White House. And you can make more money, which I think is another factor here for some people. Yeah, I don't know if that's I don't a, know if that's for I don't hope, I don't know if that's a factor <clears throat> for hope. But I do think that there's a lot of people who have left the White House in the last few months who just got tired of working like 18 hour days and they have children and they were tired of making no money and they just 
pieced out. Yeah, it's worth remembering that these are really exhausting jobs normally. And Hope had been doing this for three years. She'd been working with Trump on this campaign for about three years. And, um, you know, being White House communications director is an exhausting job in a normal presidency with a president who says whatever he thinks whenever he thinks it and hosts open meetings with lawmakers where he goes off on policy that doesn't match what Republicans have been saying. You know, that's a really hard job for a communications director. Nancy, I'd like to circle. And we're going to get to Jared Kushner in a minute. But before we do, I want to circle back to something that you said at the beginning um, uh, pertaining to the Russia investigation and hope. Um, there's been a lot um, made over the last 24 hours of whether we should believe the the White House when they say that this that hope leaving had nothing to do with the Russia investigation. And it does seem that uh, the reporting uh, is pretty good uh, on this notion that she didn't leave as a result of her testimony this week. But I mean, should we, I think it kind of brings up a broader question, like should we trust the White House when they tell us things like that? I just think it's hard because the White House uh, has said so many times that something isn't accurate and then it turns out to be accurate. You'll get all these phone calls like, this is not true, not true. And then it turns out to be completely true three days later. And then there's like, well, and they just sort of shrug yeah, their sort shoulders. Of shrug. Yeah. And even Hope in her uh, testimony before one of the intelligence committees on the Hill said uh, earlier this week that she had told little white lies for the president. I mean, she admitted that and that leaked out. And so... I mean, we can only go with the reporting that we have now. Um, that's sort of the best that we have. But I think that it's a question that reporters will keep pressing on uh, as she starts to think about her departure and when she actually leaves, you know, what really prompted it and also what her conversations with investigators and folks on the Hill have been related to the Russia investigation. And it, I mean, just because she leaves the White House does not mean that her involvement in the investigation uh, is over, right? So she could be potentially brought in again. She could be questioned again by Mueller's team. Right. I mean, she was with the campaign from the very beginning and she was in the White House at some of these key moments when, um, you know, for things that Robert Mueller is looking into. So she's still going to be asked questions about those things that she witnessed, even if she leaves the administration. Nancy, I want to ask you about Jared Kushner. Uh, last week, the chief of staff, John Kelly, uh, downgraded his security clearance from the highest level, uh, top secret, uh, to just simply secret. It sounds it sounds impressive, but it's actually not. I mean, if you're if you're an intern at the State Department, you probably have a se- secret security clearance. So, what does this mean, big picture, for Jared? Well. For me, I think just big picture, it means that the knives are definitely out for him. I mean, these leaks came from somewhere. And I think that they were like strategically leaked at a time when there was a lot of questions about Jared's security clearance and security clearances broadly. Um, And, you know, General Kelly has been a bit down on Ivanka and Jared's kind of broad portfolio in the White House. Definitely, I think, wants them to stay in their lanes, but also perhaps you know, not try to play the cards of being both family members and uh, White House staffers, depending on which is convenient for them in the situation. Uh, but I think that it, it's it been a very hard week for Jared. I, I mean, you know, he just has this downgraded security clearance. Uh, these questions were raised. And part of the reason that he got that apparently, um, according to the reporting, is that there were foreign governments who thought that they could potentially take advantage of him uh, because of his his financial situation. And so that was part of why he has not gotten security clearance. And and Nancy, by financial uh, situation, you, of course, mean his various business entanglements, uh, his debt to uh, foreign countries, his his, uh, previous businesses, uh, 
and actually current businesses, right? I mean, involvement in in, in uh, businesses all around, in, in activity all around the world, right? In China and yeah. Israel and all yeah. over, right? He still has a huge stake in his real estate companies. And there's been a lot of questions raised about what potential conflicts of interest that exposes him to, uh, both with foreign governments, but even with, the New York Times had a great story, like even with just bankers and hedge funds here who met with him at the White House, and in some cases, then these institutions lent him money shortly thereafter. And so it just raises a lot of questions about uh, what he's doing. And I think that the drumbeat is really on Jared in particular, and the questions he raised. The Wall Street Journal editorial board, which, as most listeners know, is very, very right-leaning this morning, came out with an editorial basically suggesting that uh, Jared and Ivanka have both become political liabilities to the president and it might be time for them to step away. And so that to me shows that there's just this growing movement uh, for them to potentially leave. I think some of this goes back to how the administration was staffed up in the first place. You guys did a lot of reporting during the transition about um, they just didn't have the you know full roster of people that they were ready to bring into the administration like a lot of administrations would so they could get started on day one. And so people were hired more for their connection to the president or their loyalty to the president than or because just that they, they were there. Or right? just that they yeah. were there than because they were heavily vetted and um, considered to be the right people for these positions. And so now you're seeing a lot of people with trouble getting security clearances um, that could have been headed off on the front end. And every administration has people that they want to bring in who don't get security clearance um, or whose security clearance take a long time. Um, But the extent to which you're seeing this um, with senior officials, um, people that the president really wanted to bring in is kind of unusual and that it's taking so long for people so high up is fairly unusual. And these are things, the things that are coming up and that are sort of bogging down these clearances aren't things that you would have to, you know, do a really deep FBI background check to discover, right? So in some cases, they're just things that you could Google and find out, right? And that and that is like a real failure on, on the vetting operation of this administration. Right. Well, you mentioned debt and our coworker, Josh Gerstein, who'll be here later, uh, did some reporting last week and said that debt is frequently an issue in security clearances for people much lower down with much less debt. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of thing that you would know would raise a red flag and you would want to try and address early on. And so we're more than a year into the administration and people are not getting security clearances because of far business entanglements and that kind of thing. You know, you could have seen this coming. But the interesting thing was I felt like when the White House was staffing up during the transition, you know, part of it was that that this was a lean campaign and they didn't have people ready. But part of of it was a decision on the part of the president to basically try to run the federal government a bit like he had his family business. You know, he wanted a small, tight, loyal group of aides, and he wanted to bring in family members. And, and this is, you know, this is the result of that. And Nancy, I'm curious, you know, the beginning of this administration, the first several months was characterized by sort of a Game of Thrones type atmosphere where there were sort of cliques and, and you know, various alliances. Um, you know, the the perception was that Kelly sort of ta- tamped some of that down. But it's, it's, cl- it's becoming clearer and clearer, I think, that that um, – he may have diminished it slightly, but it's still always been simmering during this under the under the surface, right? I think it's always been simmering, and I feel like January uh, till now, it's gone back to those early days of the administration in terms of the chaos, in terms of the the infighting, um, and just in terms of the low morale in the White House. People are not happy there. People are not having fun, um, and people are very suspicious of one another. Um, and so, I feel like uh, you know. 
Ryan's ended up in this place and Kelly has also ended up in this place. And I think we should you know, make the point that these personnel stories are sexy and Politico loves writing about them, but they also have real world implications, right? The people that are brought in more so than I think any presidency that, that, that I've you know, covered or read about really influence very deeply the policies that this president puts out. The president is more or less an open book on policy issues, right? So if he brings in you know, X person or, or Y person, it could have a totally different uh, you know, effect on, on his agenda. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Stephen Miller has made, you know, a really strong impact on the the president's immigration policy. You look at the what you were reporting last night, Andrew, um, about trade policy. It's sort of a fight between two different groups of people that the White House has brought in. Um, so people are policy in this administration. So I think we'll leave it there. We're going to keep paying attention to these policy and personnel issues. And uh, we're going to move on to segment two. Let's welcome senior reporter Josh Gerstein. Welcome, Josh. Hey, guys. Great to see you. Thanks for being here. Sure. Nice. Uh, Our second data point for the day is 18. Former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort has 18 counts of tax and bank fraud against him in just one of the two indictments he's facing. Uh, Josh, where are we with the Manafort indictments? um, And and why are there two trials? And how how is that all going to play out? Well, they're really turning up the heat on Paul Manafort. Special counsel Robert Mueller's office is playing hardball uh, by broadening this case out, um, going beyond the money laundering and the failure to register as a foreign agent. Um, allegations that were made in this first indictment, which now dates back to to October, uh, now hitting him with a series of bank fraud uh, charges uh, having to do with the ways he got about $20 million worth of loans in connection uh, with various properties and specifically charging him uh, with not paying his taxes for four or five uh, years in the early part of this uh, decade. Uh, we'd always wondered in the first indictment, all the, there were all these charges leveled. Why wasn't he explicitly charged with tax evasion? And now we actually see those charges being lodged against him. Uh, it ups the ante in a number of different ways. Um, one is uh, the total amount of money involved has now gone from allegedly $18 million laundered to $30 million laundered. Uh, why does that matter? Well, at the end of the day, when you do the sentencing guidelines that dictate what sentence people generally get in a federal criminal case, the number one most important thing is not how many counts you're convicted on. It's not really the specifics of the charges. It's how much money is at stake. And that's what drives a super long sentence. And just by increasing that dollar amount, they're adding three or four more years to this, the amount of time that he's facing. Um, why there are two different charges, one in D.C. and one in Alexandria, um, it's a complicated answer. It has to do with the fact that he files his taxes out of Virginia and the prosecutors apparently didn't think that they have venue to bring those charges in D.C. They offered Manafort's defense the chance to uh, have the trial consolidated in D.C. Manafort's people declined and so the result is now we have uh, two potentially two trials and two for now two parallel processes playing out in in uh, you know across the river several miles away and Manafort is fighting this right I mean he's not uh, cooperating uh, as as others have in this investigation like Rick Gates and others right so far there's no sign at all that he's uh, been cooperating and certainly the fact that Rick Gates who is his longtime right-hand man uh, consigliere or whatever you want to call him um, agreed to plead guilty is another very ominous development for Paul Manafort I mean Whatever the keys to the kingdom are within the Manafort enterprise, Rick Gates is certainly aware of where to where to find them and where to tell Mueller's people to find them. And in fact, it's worth taking note with this new indictment uh, that it came 
after Rick Gates was already cooperating with prosecutors and had gone in and done what's sometimes called a queen for a day session where you just go in and you sort of tell the prosecutors everything you know and they try to figure out whether you're being truthful. In fact, prosecutors say that Gates lied to them during that session, which I guess could be a problem down the road. Uh, But certainly you can say, hey, go look under this rock and that may well be uh, where some of these charges came from. And, you know, taking a step back a little bit, I mean, can we draw a line from, I think this is the question that everyone wants an answer to. Can we draw a line from Paul Manafort to President Donald Trump? And 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 uh, how clear a line is that? So I don't know. I mean, I don't have the magic answer to that question. Obviously, Manafort is now under tremendous pressure. And if he has information that could implicate President Trump or other very senior uh, officials in the campaign, other than Manafort, who was basically the campaign manager for a few months. You don't get much higher than that. But members of Trump's family or other folks who may have had dealings with Russians or pro-Russian elements, uh, he's under tremendous pressure to turn that kind of information over. However, it's also possible that Mueller um, may not get higher in the operation than Manafort. I mean, Manafort himself was under so much potential leverage from Ukrainian business people uh, during the campaign, had these outstanding debts or financial disputes where he felt he was owed um, money by uh, the Ukrainians and other folks that are close to to the Russians, uh, that that may be what you know Mueller is looking for in terms of the campaign being compromised. And if even if it's a disappointment to some people in Washington, maybe at the end of the day, the trail doesn't lead to the president. Maybe it leads to what Mueller's office views as compromise on the part of very senior campaign officials. It's probably worth a reminder now that the charges that Manafort is facing are due to his lobbying work related to Ukraine and things that he did before the campaign. Um, So this is not directly related to um, the part of the investigation that's looking at Russia's interference in the election and whether the Trump campaign participated in that. Um, But Mueller obviously can um, go after any crimes that he finds in the course of pursuing that Russia investigation. And that's how he came across this um, Manafort-Gates activity that they're in trouble for. And this is, of course, what everyone in the White House will remind you of over and over and over again, right, is that this is sort of tangential, at least in their mind, to uh, the central question of whether or not the uh, – Trump campaign somehow coordinated with Russia, right? And you know, another person who will remind you of that, uh, at least on several different occasions, is Paul Manafort himself and his attorneys at at each turn, uh, both of the first indictment and then the second one, uh, just in the last few days, they go out of their way to make the point that this is not related to the Trump campaign. There's nothing here related to the Trump campaign, which seems to be a way to keep yourself in good stead with uh, the White House by you know echoing that talking point, it underscores the notion that maybe Mueller, in the eyes of some, is on a wild goose chase. And you know one of the questions here is, does Mueller have less leverage over Paul Manafort uh, than any normal prosecutor would have over any normal target? Um, generally, if somebody comes to you and says, "Hey, you're looking at the possibility of doing 15 to 20 years in prison." Um, that's going to get your attention and you're going to do just about anything you can to get that prosecutor to to back off or to cut a deal or whatever. Um, It's a big gamble to go to trial and think you're going to be acquitted if the downside is getting 15 to 20 years in prison. Uh, But there's sort of another question lingering out here, which is 
will Paul Manafort or others in this investigation get a pardon from President Trump? Or would Trump take some dramatic action against the prosecutors, which would shut down the investigation? And um, you know, as long as that seems to be a live possibility, it seems to me that Paul Manafort has a um, significant incentive to keep up the fight and to just go forward with his legal battle in a way that I think a normal defendant and normal defense lawyers would be looking to resolve very quickly. If this, uh, Josh, if this hasn't uh, swept up the president yet at all, what about uh, his family members? Because obviously Jared Kushner and uh, you know some of the Trump sons were involved in the campaign when Manafort was there. How? What's the potential exposure for them in this? So I think they do have potential exposure. We've already seen from Manafort that uh, – I'm sorry, from uh, Mueller, the way Mueller has proceeded here against some other players. There's this Dutch attorney who is accused of not telling the truth. There's much higher level players like Michael Flynn, uh, the former um, national security advisor who admitted to not telling the truth to investigators. So it is totally possible if you're brought in for serious questioning and they view that you, they're certain that you lied and they think you lied on purpose that you can be charged. Um, what the exposure is of other officials, I think, is less clear. I mean, one of the questions we have is how broad is Mueller's look at someone like Jared Kushner? Um, there's a lot of noise out there that they're looking at Kushner's business dealings over the years and um, even other Trump family business dealings um, and that therefore Mueller could act in any of those uh, areas. So I wouldn't be comfortable to be in that position. That said – some of these issues around collusion and making deals with the Russians or political deals or even getting an advanced look at Hillary Clinton's emails, those are very, very difficult cases. And there's a lot of legal scholars that are divided on um, whether Mueller could bring a case like that. And simply the fact that they are divided might mean that Mueller might not do it. So far, what we've seen are pretty, I would say, pedestrian kind of charges you lied to these investigators. You lied to the bank about your bank loans. You didn't pay your taxes. These are not esoteric uh, allegations. I think any jury and, and any court would be familiar with that. Uh, the notion that you received an in-kind donation because somebody let you see an email or told you about something bad that another candidate has done, I've never seen a case like that in my life. And so Mueller is sort of a by-the-book guy and therefore I'm a little doubtful he would go down a route like that unless he's pretty sure of what the outcome would be. And I think let's broaden the conversation out a little bit. Like, Nancy, can you tell us a little bit about sort of what the White House is thinking right now as this investigation dominates the headlines? And can you kind of take us into Trump's head a little bit? I mean, it seems to me that uh, so much of Trump's uh, fears surrounding this investigation go to the, the the very core of who he is, which is he doesn't he wants to be taken seriously. And if um, this investigation continues to gain traction, he doesn't want anyone to start questioning le the, his legitimacy as as a president, right? Yeah, and I think his he, there's always been a bit of insecurity about his legitimacy as a leader, and that comes you know not just from insecurity about the Russia investigation, but just like insecurity about people who didn't support him or blue states. So it's much broader than that. I feel like inside the White House, when I speak to people, uh, typically most people do not want to talk about the Russia investigation. You know, you do not get your calls returned about it. People are very skittish about speaking about it, sort of even on background. I think that there's just a fear of no one wants to get swept up in it at all because the people that have gotten swept up in it, like Pope Hicks, for instance, or Don McGahn has been questioned. Uh, so has Steve Bannon. So have Reince Priebus. You know, they've had to hire really expensive lawyers People in the White House do not make that much money. This is a huge financial burden. And so I feel like people don't want to get swept up in it. 
And then the few people who do want to talk about it are just very quick to lean on the talking points that this is not collusion. You know, look at what we've, you know, not collusion at all, Nancy. That's what someone told me like two Fridays <laughs> ago at seven o'clock at night. Um, you know, we've, we've been vindicated, no collusion. And I think that that's a talking point that uh, Trump really sticks with as well. I think what I'll be curious about is, you know, the Manafort trial is going to start this fall. And my question is, I find all of this Russia stuff so complicated, it's very hard to keep track of. And I am a White House reporter. This is part of my job. My question, and and one thing I'm wondering about is, will American voters sort of be cognizant enough of what's going on and familiar enough with the ins and outs of it to say whether or not it will have any effect on the midterms this fall? I mean, I think it could have in the same way that um – you know, I think people were not that familiar with some of the allegations against Hillary Clinton uh, during the 2016 campaign. But it, it may have been pivotal in the end, the sense that there was a, a sense of scandal and a sense of impropriety around a cloud her, over a cloud right. that hung over her um, from all the polling numbers that we've seen. There were concerns, uh, particularly among, you know, white women voters, uh, perhaps even in the last week or two of the campaign fueled by Comey's statements and other things that, you know, this is just a mess and the country doesn't need this mess. And for Manafort to be going in and out of the courthouse on a daily basis with the television coverage and and so forth, uh, I just can't – it's certainly not going to be helpful to the president or Republic, Republicans. And I do think it will, um, you know, uh, it, it, it will inert to their detriment. It's just a question of how big a magnitude that's going to be. The other thing is, you know, we have the potential of two trials. The second trial might be before or after. Um, the Virginia court moves faster usually than D.C. So there's one possibility that maybe those charges could be tried even sooner. Uh, so then you would have the possibility of back-to-back -back trials. And it's still possible that Manafort could cut a deal. I mean, most federal cases end with people cutting deals. Um, if there is a trial or two trials, They'd be the first ones that Mueller has had in this investigation because everybody else who's come within their crosshairs seems to have cut a deal. I think the thing the White House has to be worried about if these cases do go to trial is what you were talking about, that every time Trump does some appearance before the press or every time they have a press briefing, they're going to be asked about this rather than about whatever thing in their agenda they're trying to promote in the midterms. And also that every candidate, every Republican candidate is asked about Trump's judgment in hiring Paul Manafort and Rick Gates to be part of his campaign campaign when they had been involved in this activity. Um, and, you know, the other Manafort-related thing that the White House has to be wondering about is um, Rick Gates has pleaded guilty and is cooperating with the investigation. And so we know he can talk about Manafort, but he also was around for the convention. He stayed on as a liaison to the RNC after Manafort left the campaign. He was involved in planning the inauguration. He joined a pro-Trump outside group after Trump took office. The White House acknowledged that he had been to the White House after Trump took office. So he was around for a lot of the things that Mueller is also asking questions about. And we don't know at this point what he's going to say. And I think just one more question for you, Josh, and then we'll, I think we'll wrap it up. So say I got my mom on the phone, you know, she reads the Boston Globe every day, she's pretty well read, but she doesn't follow the Russian investigation. And what are the, the sort of two or three things that you would say to her to kind of bring her into the loop and give her a better understanding, not just of the specifics of the day to day, but like what this really means uh, in a big picture sense? Um, I mean, I still think the overall narrative here is uh, this effort that uh, the Russian government made to try to, um, you know, either wreak havoc or perhaps more directly um, 
back Donald Trump in the campaign. Um, it's an ongoing problem that uh, the U.S. has been slow to address. I think that's alarming to a lot of people um, on Capitol Hill on both sides of the aisle that the response to this so far um, seems to have been left to sort of obscure government commissions and parts of the Department of Homeland Security that people don't know much about. Um, and I and think the broader question behind the investigation is regardless of what happened in 2016, how seriously is the U.S. responding to this challenge to, to um, America's electoral system and to American democracy? Well, I think that's a good place to leave it. And thanks for educating my mother, Josh. And thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. No problem. And thanks, Nancy and Emily, for coming in. It's always good to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. And a big thank you to our listeners. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. And email us at nerdcast at politico.com. Our producers are Bridget Mulcahy and Micaela Rodriguez. Dave Shaw is our executive producer. Our researcher is Zach Montalaro. And our illustrator is Bill Kutchman. <laughs>